by the way, uh, Elaine Ducasse, a multi-Michelin-starred chef, uh, recommends letting a steak rest half as long as it took to cook it. So if it took 20 minutes to cook the steak, just follow me here, then the steak needs to rest 10 minutes before you cut into it and eat it. And for what it's worth, the illustration is be patient. The secret to great grilling is the same secret The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 35. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Head over to my podcast page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, and there you can sign up and join my Eating Liberty Facebook group. You can follow me on Twitter and Minds and Gab or even Bitbacker.io, and all those tabs are on the podcasts page. Uh, you can support the show through Patreon or Bitcoin. Uh, and those tabs are also on the podcast page. And thank you to everyone who's doing that. Or you can support the show and fill in the gaps made from the state's education by clicking over to the banner or navigating to culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback, which is my affiliate link to the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. When you subscribe through my link, I do earn a commission at no cost to you, and you get the education you were denied. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash biteback. You've heard me mention a few times that Savory Spice is my favorite online spice company. They now have a program which has all the seasonings assembled for a recipe, such as curried cauliflower with crispy tofu, or curried sweet potato soup, or shepherd's pie with carrot mash. Each recipe card comes with pre-measured seasonings for that recipe, and all you have to do is cook and eat. Single recipe cards and spice kits start at $6.95. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash savory recipe card, or Click the banner on today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 35. Hello, folks. It's just me today. With Memorial Day and Father's Day and Secession Day approaching, it seemed a good time to talk about grilling. Part of the talk is related to a book I'm reading called Cooking with Fire, which is linked to today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 35. In addition to being well-written, that is, very readable and interesting and informative, it is a great glimpse into a culinary past. My friend Phil Creshen mentioned it to me, and he was spot on. It really is an excellent book. All right, enough of that. Now let's get into the show. Summer's coming, and that means grilling time. Yes, yes, grilling can happen all year long, but summer seems to be the best time, certainly for grilling at the beach, if you like that kind of thing. 
For the traditionalists, there are a few must-haves. Burgers and hot dogs or kielbasa or bratwurst or chicken. Uh, steaks, of course, for the less traditional whole roasts, vegetables, eggplant, which, you know, technically is a berry, but uh, there's a lot of ways to get your grill on. When we, my family and I, were renovating our house in Central Lake, Michigan, that particular summer, we didn't have any power. So everything was outside. We had a big fire pit in the front yard, and over the fire pit was a uh, an oven rack or two, and it was a big fire pit. And every day, build the fire and grilled half chickens and roast corn on the grill. And the way we did that was leave the corn in the husk, put it in a cooler and soak it with water for a couple of hours. So really, it was steamed corn, but it had that little smoky flavor even permeated through the husks. But man, oh man, that was, uh, <laughs> was well, you know, it seemed a simpler time, and I look back with some fondness on just hard work, but simple time. Well, you know, that's that's a long time ago, and that's fond memories, but now I have a nice grill outside. It is uh, propane gas-powered, and it's good. I like it. It's out of business, the company, Vermont Castings, I think, but yeah, that's another story. So back in Central Lake on those days when we were just chucking the gr- <laughs> just truck the chicken on the on the grill and you know wait for it to be done we didn't have cookbooks we didn't have grilling books we didn't have these tools we had long tongs and fire in a grill and that was pretty much all we needed but now with you know the pleasantries of more modern life uh, I have a book, and there are lots of books. And one of the things that's kind of interesting to do uh, in in food, well, in lots of things, but there's there's a a fun thing to do with food history, which is in part with the food, but also in part with technology, or in some cases the lack thereof. So. Uh, a few things to clarify before we get into this episode about grilling. Grilling is not barbecuing. And there's a... <laughs> if you go north or south of the Mason-Dixon line, and I'm not really sure how it works west of the Mississippi, but I am pretty sure how it works over there. If you are south of the Mason-Dixon line, simply because you put food on the grill does not a barbecue make. Uh, if you go up north, they're pretty sure that since it's on a grill, it's automatically barbecued. And while this is maybe not very much of a fun distinction, there is a distinction. Uh, grilling is also not smoking. That's a separate thing. And it might the food might taste smoky, but smoking is a whole different thing. And these are, are distinctions that at least I think are important to make. Now, I'm much too much of a Yankee to talk about uh, to talk about barbecuing. I'm going to need to find a guest to do that. 
smoking, I've done smoking, and mostly I've done cold smoking, which is uh, the food doesn't cook. So a smoked salmon that you would get similar to like a lox would be uncooked smoked fish. Now, it has been uh, cured with a salt mix and other things to get it ready to go into the smoker, but it's a process of making smoke and keeping the inside cold, and you do that either with with um, uh, plug-in technology or <laughs> the other way with ice, lots and lots and lots of ice. That's another show altogether. Grilling I've got some experience with, and a lot of that is from the restaurants, but also from a lot of that from being at home. So you can have, uh, you can, you know, your, your grill depends on your budget. You can have really big fancy grills that are uh, natural gas or propane uh, heated. You can have grills that are charcoal or charcoal briquettes. In my opinion, actual hardwood charcoal is superior, has better flavor, has better heat. Or if you are interested in cooking into the past, there is a way to build a hearth either in the house at your big fireplace or out in your backyard or maybe your front yard with with lots of rocks. And you can design it in a way that the heat radiates from the rocks and you're cooking with coals. And this is something that I don't know anything about. So I'm not going to talk about that too much, but I'm going to tell you that there is a resource, an excellent resource, and I'm reading her book. The author's name is Paula Marcoux, and she's written Cooking with Fire, subtitle From Roasting on a Spit to Baking in a Tenure, Rediscovering the Techniques and Recipes that Capture the Flavor of Wood-Fired Cooking. Now, this is a thing, and I'm really impressed with this book, and she gives you instructions on how to build the hearth uh, and how big to make it. She gives you instructions on how to make your own spit. If this is something you want to do, you can you can go buy them. But if, if you are of the uh, let's get as much into history as we can, then there are instructions on how to do that and some resources. And, you know, you might have to go to Home Depot for some of these things, but that's okay. Uh, if you are interested in doing something like uh, smaller pieces of meat. So let's go back a second. So on the hearth, you have the spit roast. And so that's going to be kind of big things. A whole rabbit, a couple of pounds of pork loin, um, a whole chicken, a whole duck possibly a whole goose. So that's something that's going to take some time and you can put on a spit. Uh, a chicken breast, well, that's another story. If you want to roast your sliced zucchini or uh, eggplant, well, we're going to need something different. And for those things, we're going to use a schwenker and that is a tripod. And she gives you, she can explain to you how to lash it together. So it's a you have to go back to your Boy Scout days and remember your knots or your sailor days and remember your clove hitch. So you lash together three nice pieces of um, of, of wood, uh, trees, small saplings or something, you know, bigger. And from that, you hang a, a grill, a, a rack, say, from like a charcoal grill. Uh, and you fashion some chains and some um, different hooks and things and you put this thing over your coals and now 
small things, chicken breasts, maybe even you know, hamburgers or hot dogs and your um, sliced vegetables. Now you can grill them over this open pit on this shrinker and get the benefit of your hearth and then the small pieces of, uh, of meat or veggie can be cooked. So there's a few things we want to talk about for our for our grilling, either on the on the mechanical one or on the hearth. Now, basting is a controversial topic amongst grillers. Uh, I've found no hard and concrete support for it either way. I've been doing some looking. I asked a chef's group. Basting, yes or no? question was more complicated, but fundamentally it was yay or nay. And of those who answered, it was a pretty even split. So you're not going to get a committed response one way or the other, but you're going to get a response. Uh, basting is pretty much up to you. However, I do have an opinion on it, and my opinion is don't baste. Uh, the reason I say don't baste is... When you take the pan drippings and brush them on the outside of the meat, you're kind of brushing off what's already there, which doesn't make any sense. And I don't think that the, the, the time of contact of the basting juices can do much of anything other than just run off the thing you're basting. So I don't, I don't find value there. And if you are doing a pork roast or a whole New York strip loin or a prime rib on a, on a hearth or even a whole bird, if you've got some kind of a nice salt and or spice or herb mixture on the outside, well, as you're basting it, you're, you're washing all that stuff off. The, the saltiness on the outside makes a nice crust and it also adds a nice crunch to the whole bite of the thing that you're eating, and I enjoy that. So I, I don't baste, and I don't even baste my turkey in the oven for Thanksgiving. Uh, so that's going to lead us now to this next thing. If I'm not going to baste, how am I going to make sure that uh, the meat is as juicy as it can be? So obviously you know that when you roast a piece of meat, even when you grill a hamburger, as the meat starts to cook, it's obviously starting to shrink because this is what proteins do. And it's squeezing out juice and fat and you get the flames on the grill and you get the carbon on the meat. And so that's another issue. What are we going to do about keeping moisture in the meat? What we're going to do is brine. Now, Brining is a liquid versus a cure, which is dry. And the big difference here is the presence of water. So brining is a solution of salt and sometimes sugar dissolved in water. And now this isn't just plain water, but it's salt water. And this makes a really, really big difference. So the brine and the salt are going to act on the cells of the meat as, you, as, as the meat is sitting in the brine. And a pork chop is going to brine for less time than a chicken or a duck or a whole turkey. And so at Thanksgiving, I definitely brine my turkey. And I'm going to tell you the reason why. So Michael Ruhlman, who is a uh, food author uh, and other things too, but he's written pretty extensively on some food, 
maybe wrote what is, I think, the best and the most concise explanation about why brines work. Uh, so I'm going to read from his book, Charcuterie, uh, which is going to be also listed on today's show notes page. So he writes, A brine permeates a chicken or pork loin rapidly and completely, bringing with it any flavors you might have added to the salty solution. There's a pleasing contradiction in a brine. Salt, as you know, dehydrates. It draws moisture out of the cells of the meat. Yet, while a brine's main effect on meat is to dehydrate it, a brine nevertheless results in a moister, juicier cut, and one that stays juicy even on reheating. The reason for this seeming contradiction explains Russ Parsons is that salt changes the shape of the protein in the meat or bird so that it can actually hold more juice than unbrined meat. End quote. I'm a big fan of brines, and when I brine the meats that I brine, I'm always happy I did, but I don't always brine. So it, it, it takes, so it takes a few steps. So brining, you want to make sure that I use salt and I use sugar, and I use the recipe in Brian's book. The, you want to make sure that this stuff is completely dissolved. And the best way to do that is to bring the, bring the liquid uh, to a boil. Folks, let's take a moment out for a word from my sponsor. So the basic brine that I use and that I make is a gallon of water, a cup of salt, and a half a cup of sugar. And since I know that a gallon of water weighs eight pounds, what I do is actually I heat up half a gallon of water with the salt and the sugar, bring that to a boil, and then add four pounds of ice to bring it down cold quickly. Bringing bringing a gallon of water up to a boil and then waiting for it to cool, that takes a lot longer. The transfer of energy is pokey. So help it along by giving it half of its quantity of ice. So now that the brine is made, the salt and the sugar are dissolved, and it's cold, and of course you want it to be cold because you don't want to put raw protein into something warm. It's going to, it's going to coagulate the outside. As it's in there doing its little briny thing, the osmosis is drawing in the salt and the sugar, and the salt is going in and doing its little thing with the proteins. And this is what's this is how we're getting moisture into the meat. If you just put the pork chop or the chicken breast into water that would not happen because there's nothing to go inside into the deep into the chemistry of the meat to change the composition of the meat. So the advantage brined meats have is one, it contributes, if you put aromatics in there, there are some people who don't agree that if you add a lot of garlic and black pepper and rosemary and uh, thyme or cardamom or whatever you're doing, not everyone agrees that uh, as the salt goes into the meat, it's taking the flavor with it. Some people think that that's not true. You decide for yourself. But the moisture quant level has changed in the cooked meat, and it also holds its moisture better than unbrined meats. What that means is if you accidentally overcook a little bit, you're chicken breast and your pork chop or your whole New York ship is going to be more moist than the unbrined meat. So 
that's another reason to do it. Uh, in Ruhlman's book, he's got some basic guidelines on how much time to let the thing brine. So that's something you can look up. And it's just there's, there's guidelines for sizes based on weight for the meat to brine. Now, for game dishes, if you're going to do, say, venison or wild boar, um, my friend Haley Heathman, who was on this podcast back, I think, episode six, uh, has her e-cookbook, Kill It, Clean It, Cook It, and Eat It. Uh, in there, she's got some really excellent recipes for uh, brines, for, for, for game meats or elk or whatever you're hunting or fowl birds. Definitely worth checking out that book. So, got our brined meat ready to go. When you take the meat out of the brine, a couple of paper towels, pat it dry, but let it, let it sit out or in the cooler, not necessarily out of room outside, but in the cooler, let it dry a little bit. We want to get, we want that, if especially if it's got skin like a bird, we want to get that skin a little bit dry so it's going to get a nice crispiness to it. We want to do something to this. We're not, we're not going, we're going to season it up, lots of salt, lots of, um, you can use um, dried spices, you can use fresh herbs. Uh, if you're going to make a paste to put on the outside of the meat, that was me rubbing my hands together, um, <laughs> pretending to rub the pork loin with a mix of salt and black pepper. And um, for pork, maybe like a you know, uh, juniper berries and coriander seed and um, uh, maybe cumin seed. Um and flavors that you like, grind them up in a mortar and pestle, uh, add some fresh garlic to that, add a little bit of either rendered pork fat or olive oil so it gets kind of mushy. Uh, you can add a little bit of red wine to it or white wine to it or a little bit of good vinegar to it to give it, you know, some uh, spreadability. And then put that on the outside of the meat and let it sit for a couple of hours. And if you want to, put it in the cooler. But it's going to just give it a chance to... Uh, permeate into the the fat and the flesh of the meat before you start to uh, grill it, either on the grill or on the hearth. So our, our brined meat has our spice and salt and black pepper rub on the outside. Uh, now, if we're doing on our shrinker, we want to do something in the way of uh, flavor in a different form. So this is where a barbecue-style sauce uh, and quite frankly, I would recommend making your own. And I will put a recipe up on the show notes page for a basic one. Um, a barbecue sauce is going to have sugar in it. Um, there's probably a way not to do that. Um, I haven't looked for it because I'm fine with my barbecue sauce having sugar in it. What I'm kind of opposed to from the commercial ones is all of the things I can't pick, grow, or pronounce. So sugar isn't, <laughs> well, if you've listened to other episodes, yes, sugar is the big bad guy, but sugar isn't the big bad guy all the time, everywhere. Sometimes we need it and well, we want it. But anyway, that's another show. So a nice, zippy, zesty, spicy hot, if you like that kind of a thing, barbecue sauce to brush on to your chicken breast or chicken thighs or whole chicken halves, whatever you got, uh, that's a nice thing. And that can add a really good 
uh, flavor onto your finished product, you can even, why not, put barbecue sauce on your hamburger because it sounds good. You know what? That sounds really good. Barbecue sauce hamburger, hamburger with some really good bacon and some smoked Gouda cheese on a good um, oh pretzel or brioche roll. My goodness. Some chips and potato salad. I think we're good. All right. Sometimes we're going to have a piece of meat like that wild game, say the uh, venison loin or the uh, wild boar, or even you know, commercial pork loin is going to have a lot of uh, a lot of added fat to it on the outside. Uh, so this isn't as critical for that, but the wild animals are pretty darn lean, and the loin has no intramuscular fat. Now there's a couple of ways cooks and chefs will get fat onto or into lean muscle meat. Now, these take a few extra steps, and this isn't necessarily something you can do at home without some help. Uh, one of these processes is called barding. And barding is taking, if you can find it, it's not always available everywhere, uh, there's a thing called pork fat back, which is just what it says it is. It's just pure piece of fat, nice white fat, uh, and have your butcher slice it really thin, maybe a sixteenth of an inch. And you should be able to, depending on what the size is, but say it's a three by three hunk of fatback, um, he should be able to get, or she should be able to get a good dozen or so um, thin pieces of pure fatback. And what you do is you lay them, so season the meat first, lay the fatback onto the cleaned uh, cleaned means you've taken off the silver skin and the things that will not cook down uh, in the cooking process. They stay tough. And then you put the, the fat on top of the meat and then tie the fat onto the meat so that as the, uh, as the whole roast is cooking, as the fat starts to get hot and begins to melt, Yes, part of that's going to drip off, but part of that's going to go into the meat, giving it a little bit more moisture because fat is moisture and fat is flavor. The other way to get fat into into the meat is called larding, and there's a very funky-looking uh, larding needle, which looks like it has on the uh, business end a alligator clip, and that's designed to hold a piece of fat back that's cut into maybe uh, a quarter of an inch square and whatever the length is of the uh, piece of fat back. And you kind of just are actually literally sewing this piece of fat into the loin of the meat. So you push the needle into the meat and push it forward a few inches and then push it back out. And then as you're pulling the needle through the meat, the fat is following and then you have studded this piece of protein with some fat. And the same principle applies as the meat is cooking. Once the, uh, once the inside of the meat gets to the right temperature, the fat back starts to melt and goes into the muscle and helps uh, make, that, make that bite a little bit more moist and adds flavor. And pork fat is... Compared to a wild boar or venison, pork fat is, is neutral in flavor. It has a tiny bit of its own, but uh, those game meats are really strong flavored, so there, it isn't a battle of flavor. It's a contribution of fat and, and 
and, and moisture. One of the tools we're going to need for our, well, any protein we're grilling, um, especially whole muscle meats, uh, even chicken leg or thigh or, or thigh quarters or chicken breast or certainly on that uh, whole roast, we're going to want an instant read thermometer. Instant read thermometer is going to be able to probe the inside, the center part of the meat to tell us what is the temperature inside because this is something that's important. We don't want, we don't, we want, we want our meat done. But like a like a balloon that has had a couple spots where tape is you can poke your pin through the tape of the balloon and the balloon will pop but the air will slowly leak out well like that balloon when you poke a whole muscle meat you've made a hole that won't seal It'll squeeze up a little bit because the proteins are, are squeezing is what they're doing, but you still have a little hole there, and that's a place where some of the inside juices are going to drip out. They're going to kind of do that anyway, and so the more we probe it, the more we increase stuff in getting out, which we don't want to have happen. So there are some visual clues. As long as your heat is low enough that when it starts to, well, Use your nose. It's going to start to smell really good. Uh, and it's going to start to, if it's a whole roast with bone on, like a pork loin, the meat's going to start to pull away from the bone a little bit. And it's going to start to have this really uh, a just delicious looking, just this mouth watering appearance of golden brown and delicious yumminess. So that's a play. Okay, now we want to start looking. Once our roast is where it needs to be, or even the chicken breast, and they're easier to tell. Once it's done, when is done? Uh, for for red meats, now this is this is kind of a tricky thing because uh, roasts or whole muscle meats, even a chicken breast, is kind of like bread. Just because bread has come out of the oven does not mean it is fully baked. Part of the baking process, and this is a critical part of the baking process, is the cooling down part. So in the bread, you've got starches, coagul um, starches gelatinizing, sugars are caramelizing, and proteins are coagulating. And it doesn't look like it's a big mess, but that bread inside is kind of all liquid, messy, gooey stuff. And the bread wants to cool down properly which means the sufficient amount of time for all those things to sort of go back to normal. So the sugars start to caramelize and get firm. The starches, the gelatinizing part, which is liquid, are, they're going back to being more solid, and the proteins are stopped being all coagulated. Which in, What that happens when a protein coagulates, it's like it gets, it gets tight. The application of heat to a protein is like humans going out in the cold. We put our arms around our body and we, get, we just squeeze ourselves. Well, that's what proteins are doing when they're getting cooked. When the application of heat hits a protein, it's doing that. But the other thing that's going on, and this is too much science, but the water, the oxygen molecules, are going, the, everything's breaking apart and everybody's going to go find everybody else. All the hydrogens go to the hydrogens, all the oxygens go to the oxygens, manganese, and all these, they all go find their own community. And there's all this just heat chemistry stuff inside. And as the meat is cooling, 
Then they kind of all go back to where they came from. And the, the juices that are inside the meat need to reassimilate inside the rest of that cooked protein steak. And everybody has seen a Christmas or Thanksgiving platter where this big, beautiful roasted turkey gets cut. And then in about five minutes, there's <laughs> all this juice at the bottom of the platter. And, you, and so the, the turkey breast is like chewing drywall. Mm, yum. Thanks, Grandma. It's delicious. Well, obviously, manners are important. And we want Grandma to feel good about spending the whole stinking day in the kitchen. But if someone had let that bird rest 20 minutes, then the compliments would be sincere. So it's really important that the bigger the roast, the bigger this, the whatever we're doing, a duck, a goose, two pounds of pork loin, a whole venison loin, or even the chicken breast, the bigger the protein, the longer it needs to rest, but it needs to rest. It's not done. It's called carryover cooking, and the temperature is going to increase some more. Now, there's obviously the ratio here is the bigger the meat, the more it's going to continue to make its own heat for a few minutes. So that big old turkey that somebody cut too soon probably could easily have rested 30 minutes out of the oven with foil on top, and it's still going to be plenty hot. doesn't cool off immediately because there's all this heat inside still staying inside. The transfer of energy isn't that quick. And a, a big New York strip roast, or even the little, maybe you're doing a 16-ounce New York Delmonico. That's a better one. It still needs time for all that stuff to sort of go back to normal before you cut it. And if you've ever had a steak at a restaurant, you cut too soon, and just this blush, this wash of stuff on, on the plate, well, the restaurant made a mistake. They should not have served it so soon because they're serving you inferior products. They did all this stuff, and now all the all the juicy bits are on a plate, and you got to soak them up with your bread and mashed potatoes. Cutting a meat too soon is kind of like taking a fully wet sponge and just squeezing it. All juice boosh, pushed out. So I don't have a sponge analogy for the other way around, but what happens is as that steak's resting, which I just mentioned, all the stuff has to go back to normal. And as it's doing that, most of the juices are going to go back into the steak or into the turkey or into the chicken or pork, whatever we got. And then those bites are like, wow, how do they do this? Well, it, it wasn't magic. They just took their time and waited. So letting the meat rest is critically important. Um, by the way, uh, Elaine Ducasse, a multi-Michelin starred chef who really is quite excellent, uh, recommends letting a steak rest half as long as it took to cook it. So if it took 20 minutes to cook the steak, just follow me here, then the steak needs to rest 10 minutes before you cut into it and eat it. And for what it's worth, the illustration is be patient. The secret to great grilling is the same secret as how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. Now, that's kind of cheeky, but I can't possibly know 
all the details about your grill or your hearth or how many pieces of chicken or hamburgers or hot dogs or bratwursts are on the grill, the more stuff on the grill, the less heat available to all those pieces. Um, how close to the coals on your hearth is the meat? How hot are the coals? How cool are the coals? What kind of wood did you use? Too many things that I can't know. But the good part is you can become master of your hearth or your swingy thing. I can't say the word. Or your whatever grill you're using by doing a little bit of practice. So there is kind of a guideline. Lower and slower is better than higher and faster. What that means is lower heat for a longer period of time is a better choice than higher heat and a shorter amount of time. Because what we want to have happen is a couple of things need to happen kind of all at the same time or at the end. We need to be at this place. And that place is that the outside of the roast needs to have a nice, crispy, delicious outside, not burnt. And the inside needs to be done, but obviously not overdone. So low and slow gives you the chance to, uh, this, this is the, the cumulative effects of time and that heat. So the slow caramelization on the outside and slowly sneaking the heat all the way to the inside, making everything done. If the outside isn't quite as crispy, yummy as you want it, well, now we have a thing we can do, which is just move that to the hotter side or turn the flame up a little bit to get a little extra crispiness on the outside of the pork loin because that tastes yummy, or uh, on the chicken, it tastes yummy, that crispy skin. Same thing, we need to let it rest. You might lose a little teeny bit of crispiness because it's sitting there for a few minutes, but what you gain in overall moisture, yes, I know, in the meat is well worth the time waiting to get that excellent excellent dinner. Obviously, the big difference between grilling, a big difference between grilling and in the house, is time. Plan on more time than you think you're going to need. Uh, triple your guess for outside versus inside. While the meat is doing the cooking thing, and if it's on the spit, this here, have, have everyone take some turns. Uh, if it's on a spit, you need to turn the spit. You need to get even cooking. So this can be everyone can spend five minutes, or you can, <laughs> you can if you're if you're a Rube Goldberg kind of a person, you can invent a device that uh, the dog can be in a treadmill and turn turn the meat. Um, I only half kid, but this becomes an opportunity outside in the summer for everybody to get involved, and this should be fun. It's outside. We're making dinner. We're making lunch. So there's there's opportunities here for more than just meal making. While the meat is cooking or grilling or, or spitting or swinging, uh, play a rousing game of darts. Does anyone remember jarts? <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, a little dangerous, but get out of the way. Pay attention. Uh, while the meat's cooking or while the meat's resting, slice tomatoes and salt them ahead of time so that brings out the extra beautiful sweetness of those really great tomatoes. Um, teach your kids what you're doing. Uh, talk about, you know, there's, there's, there's science lessons in transfer of heat. There's, there's a lot of ways to, 
make this a family thing. And I've, I've talked a lot about getting the kids involved on some level because there's, if, you, if you're doing the hearth cooking especially, man, that is, what a connection to a million, I'm, I'm exaggerating maybe, but I mean, thousands and thousands of years of humans and before cooking over a fire. Now, there's, I, I, I only mean slightly to get a little philosophical, the, the connection to the past by cooking over the fire is, can be kind of an impressive one. And it, there's, there's a, lot to be, a lot to be learned and taught in, and not just in cooking, but in, in the patience of waiting for the meat to cook. Uh, in the working together to build the hearth. And so there's effort going into a thing that's going to have some permanence because you're going to use the hearth many, many times. So for the things that are important to you, for the things that you want to share, this didactic is to find some things that are lessons or less, and, and make them fun because... My kids don't like boring lessons, but if I make it something interesting, oh man, we had fun and God, you know, darn, we learned something. Shoot. Well, that's okay. The whole goal to me anyway is to impart some information and some education and some fun. And and that's really what anybody wants. So you have some fun and you had a great dinner to boot and that sounds like a win. So uh, check the show notes page for today. I'm going to have... Uh, I will find and make a, a PDF for barbecue sauce, which is very, very versatile. The The basics are probably need to be maintained, but you can tweak those. But the additions, you can go crazy and add as much stuff as you want to. If you like uh, scotch bonnet peppers, put them in there. Me, not so much. But it's a, I like it. It's a pretty dandy. Um, barbecue sauce, um, it's going to be a red-ish looking tomato base. So it's got a sort of classic looking, um, if I can find another one that's a mustard base, I'll add that one too, just because why not and get some, get your grill on and have a good summer. All right, folks, that's going to do it. Links to the recipes mentioned and to the affiliates mentioned can be found on today's show notes page. That's culinarylibertarian.com slash 35. For your kitchen gadget needs, visit my new page, culinarylibertarian.com slash kitchen tools. I've picked my top 10, well, 12 really, gadgets a kitchen needs to have. Join the Eating Liberty Facebook group and show us your grilling rigs. Let's see that food. Let's see your grill. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon.